I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah for our Old Old Testament Scripture reading this morning. We're actually going to read three short sections in rapid succession, so that we might understand the greater context that comes to us as we continue working our way through Matthew's Gospel this morning. Begin in Isaiah chapter 7 in verse 10. So you're turning there, let me remind you or inform you of the historical context. The northern kingdom of Israel has joined forces with the Syrian army to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. I want you to remember God's promise to David. We considered last week that the Lord would establish David's throne forever. And so in the midst of this coming judgment and war, the Lord brings a word through the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, the son of David, and the king of Judah. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord God to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. As we continue to read, we find that even Judah has been infected with gross sin and idolatry and stands under the threat of judgment as well. And the Lord promises that judgment will rush over them like a flood. But He also promises that this judgment will not utterly destroy Judah because of the promises of God. And so that gives us the context if you turn to the next chapter, Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 5 through verse 10. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, the Euphrates, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. And it will overflow and pass on, reaching up even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, be shattered, give ear, all you countries. He's speaking here of the Gentiles that have stood against the throne of the Messiah. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? Because Emmanuel. Because God is with us. And now after the dark floodwaters of judgment pass over Judah comes the promise of salvation light to the nations as David's son takes his rightful seat of authority. Note here that as we look at chapter 9, that the child of verse 6 is the promised son of the virgin that we saw in chapter 7 verse 14. Telling us that despite the idolatry, exile, and judgment of Judah, the Lord will maintain his promise to establish David's throne forever. That is the context that we see here, and we're going to see this passage pop up in our sermon text this morning. So looking at uh, uh, chapter 7 is where we see our sermon context, but chapter 9 here as well, beginning in verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now looking at verse 6, why? Why can they rejoice that war is soon coming to an end? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and of the peace of his government, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that's our Old Testament background context. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 1 for our New Testament Scripture reading this morning. We see the fulfillment begin to take place of all the promises the Lord gave to His people through the prophet Isaiah. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Remember, when we hear the name Christ, that is not a last name. It is a special title and designation for the promised one spoken of by the prophets. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, now citing Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Let us go before him and ask that he would illuminate our eyes to understand this great and glorious news. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you that you have given us the story of the birth of our Savior. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, minds eager to contemplate your goodness, that we might be zealous to believe all that you have done for us. And for our salvation, we ask these things. In Christ's name, 
Amen. Well, do you ever feel dirty inside? I think so often we forget what sin really is, don't we? Part of the reason I think is that the language of sin has by and large dropped out of popular vocabulary. If we were to use the language of sin in uh, the local grocery store or in, with our neighbors, how many of them would even know fully what we were talking about? I've heard even recently some describe, someone describe sin as a failure to live up to one's, expect, one's own uh, uh, personal expectations or achievements or uh, kind of modeled in this, this concept of just a failure to, um, to do better. Um, some people speak of sin as simply a, oops, uh, an, an accident of sorts. But sin has such greater weight in Scripture. However, I do think there's one facet of sin that uh, we still have uh, in our vocabulary, even in the broader world around us, and that is the language of filth. Think of Billy who got caught watching a dirty movie. Or how the media speaks of corrupt cops, people speaking filthy language, one having a tarnished reputation. The media outlets who find it to be their job to dig up dirt on the local community leader. Or the little girl whose virtue has been soiled by the predator next door. See, I think we have that language of filth and dirtiness to speak of certain actions because we at least conceptually, the culture around us has some concept, at least a partial concept of what sin is. Sin corrupts, sin pollutes, sin defiles even from birth. We know it, we all feel it, and the things that we secretly love that we know we should not, and the things that we say that we immediately regret, as our conscience has been stained by our actions, the things that we do, the shame that it incurs, even in the things done to us, feeling defiled both outside and in. Is there a remedy given to wash away this feeling of dirtiness, this aspect of sin? This morning we read of the birth of our Savior who has been made like us in every way with one exception, the stain of sin, so that by His purity we might be made clean. Matthew recounts to us the supernatural manner of Christ's birth to give us confidence that Christ has come to save us from every facet of sin, including the filth of sin and the corrupt conscience. I'd like us to consider this good news of Christ's birth in three parts, all from Joseph's own vantage point. The story here tells us of the birth of Christ from the perspective of his adoptive father. You know, Luke's gospel tells us of Christ's birth from Mary's perspective. Matthew tells us of the birth from Joseph. So we'll consider first Joseph's dilemma in verses 18 and 19, then Joseph's dream in verses 20 to 23, then Joseph's determination in verses 24 to 25. So Joseph's dilemma, his dream, and his determination. The Gospel of Matthew begins with a simple love story of a young man who has successfully wooed and won the affections of a young gal, Joseph and Mary. But we find that love and marriage in the ancient world looks quite different uh, from engagements that we see here 
uh, in our contemporary culture. Today, there's no legal ramifications. There's no uh, great loss apart from painful heartbreak if two people become engaged uh, and then they decide that oh, it just doesn't work out and they call it off. In the ancient world, it's more binding than that. This was uh, the, uh, the whole families were involved in the process of this engagement, what we might better call a betrothal, typically arranged by the parents, often with the approval of the young couple, where the young man, typically 18 to 20 years old, and the young gal between 14 and 16 become not engaged, but betrothed to one another, becomes legally binding. A document is signed. It is done with witnesses. The couple is pledged together, but the wedding has not yet happened. Typically, the, the period between the betrothal and the wedding lasts about a year. And during this betrothal period, the two, of course, cannot engage in the act of marital intimacy. But the preparations have begun for the wedding. And legally, in the eyes of the people, they are called bride and groom. This is why you see here in this passage, Joseph is referred to as Mary's husband, even though they have not yet been married. You see, it's so binding that if one party or the other were to call off the engagement, this has to be legally done. A certificate of divorce must be issued. You see, it was so binding that, let's say, even during the engagement period, if the groom were to die, the, the bride-to-be would actually properly and legally be referred to as a widow. And so it's, there's a much more binding, there's a stronger uh, emphasis here on this engagement than we see in contemporary society. But during this engagement, it is discovered that, married is, that Mary is with child. Consider the scandal that this would cause in a highly religious community where everybody knows one another. Everybody goes to the same synagogue together. Everybody uh, is uh, at least distantly related to one another. Everybody's lived together next door to the same folks for years and years and years and years. Now, according to ordinary circumstances, you hear that Mary has gotten uh, pregnant out of wedlock. Only one of two things could have happened. Again, according to ordinary circumstances. On the one hand, either Mary has been unfaithful to Joseph, leaving Joseph humiliated and looking like a witless cuckold, one who has been cheated on and deceived, or on the other hand, Joseph has proven himself to be intemperate, of a philandering rake, without any type of sexual restraint. In either case, as news breaks out, the character of both Joseph and Mary have been called into question. We're left asking, who, who else knows about the pregnancy? How quick do you imagine the word would have spread? How do you think that conversation went with Joseph when he first received the news? How do you think Joseph would have responded right away? Mary's, Mary's what? How can this be? You think of the shame that immediately falls on him as he hears the news, the, the pain of heartbreak, the, the sense of betrayal, perhaps even the whispers that might have begun. And according to the law of Moses, Joseph is within his legal rights to have Mary put to death. 
Deuteronomy chapter 22, if a girl who is betrothed is found not to be a virgin, they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death, because she has played the harlot in her father's house. Now, theoretically, Joseph could have pretended that the child was his. He could have taken the blame, covered it up, married her, and the community would have been none the wiser. And yet there is, I think, a further problem adding to Joseph's dilemma. Last week, we considered the great concern Israel had with preserving the genealogical record of the lineage through which the Messiah would come. This very hope, this very expectation is what has shaped the very structure of the Old Testament scriptures, going as far back as Genesis. You read Ezra, you read Nehemiah, you find that this even shapes the liturgical practices in worship. Knowing who the real and rightful father is, is important, particularly for the line of Judah descending through the line of David. Think of what it would be to be the heir to the throne, Joseph, being told day in and day out, the promised Messiah has to come through your line. It's incumbent upon him to ensure that this messianic line is preserved. If it were to be corrupted, if it were to be compromised, what would happen to the promises of God? Joseph receives word and finds out that the child is not his, and at this point in time, he doesn't know whose child it really was. What if it was a child from the tribe of Benjamin? What if it was the child of a Roman soldier? You realize that the, the weightiness that hangs upon this, this isn't just the personal sense of betrayal and heartbreak. There's a real duty that has fallen upon Joseph to ensure that the line is preserved. Joseph cannot simply pretend that Mary's child uh, is his, at this point not knowing who the father is, because he knows, he's been raised to know that the Messiah must come from the line of Judah through Joseph. What would you have done if you received news uh, that your fiancé was with child and you know that it was not yours? I think most of us immediately would want our pound of flesh. But I want you to note this. Matthew commends Joseph for his righteousness. We know what Joseph is legally entitled to under the law, he can have Mary put to death. Joseph is the innocent party. He is not engaged in any illicit sexual activity with Mary or anyone else. Joseph does not respond in a knee-jerk-like faction, immediately telling everyone on the block what Mary has done to him. You look at verses 19 and 20, it says that Joseph actually stops to ponder and take the time to consider what to do. Here is a wise man. It's interesting, the Gospels do not recount a single word uttered by Joseph, and yet, here's a man of quiet integrity, where his character shines through and through. Joseph, in pondering these things, again, he doesn't have all the pieces yet. But he has at the very least made up his mind. He has no intention to humiliate her. He does not seek to put her to death, even though he has the biblical warrant to do so. 
Matthew calls Joseph righteous. We think of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, you who are spiritual, uh, seek to restore one who has fallen into transgression with gentleness. Joseph knows at this point, with all the facts that he has, he can't keep Mary. Can't pretend that the child is his because the messianic line must be preserved. But he also doesn't want her put to death. And so he decides that he secretly is going to do this in secret. He's going to get the legal witnesses, sign the certificate of divorce, send her away. No intent to shame her. See, Matthew here extols the quiet integrity and fortitude of heart of Joseph of Nazareth. I think he's commending him to us as a model of virtue. And now we're, we're given an insight into uh, what Jesus' own human family looks like. Here's a godly man. But as we know, there is something that at this point in the story, Joseph does not know. And it is this, that Mary is in fact still a virgin. She has not cheated on Joseph. Rather, this is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Two times Matthew reiterates this point. You see it once in verse 18 and again in verse 20. This is something done by the Holy Spirit. And yet, Matthew writes it in a way that we might not be confused and take this another direction. You see, in the ancient world, if you read Greek and Roman mythology, there are plenty of stories of women who have been seduced by supernatural deities in disguise. That's where you get those mythological birth stories of uh, the, the Greek heroes. But that's not what is happening here. This is not a mythological account. This is pure history. Mary has not been seduced. Mary has not engaged in any type of sexual activity, either natural or supernatural. That is not the method of this conception. Look at verse 23. It is the virgin who gives birth. The Holy Spirit is not like the, the Greek uh, and, and, and uh, Roman uh, pagan gods. This is not the product of some type of illicit activity. This is a miracle. It is a supernatural sign. We think of Luke's account where we get, I think Luke actually records the, the story straight from Mary's own lips, where the angel announces to her that she is with child. And she says, how is this possible since I'm a virgin? She's not engaged in any type of illicit activity, natural or otherwise. In other words, this is not the story of Greek and Roman mythology. Joseph has done no wrong, but Mary has done no wrong in this regard either. And the only way that a true knowledge of events can be made known is if the Lord sends a messenger to inform Joseph on what is transpiring. And it's exactly what the Lord does. Joseph does not yet know the source of Mary's pregnancy. And so while he is quietly pondering, perhaps even praying as how he should proceed, the Lord sends an angel with divine wisdom to instruct him in what he should do. Note the angel does not do. The angel does not castigate Joseph for his plan to divorce his bride-to-be. Again, Matthew has actually commended Joseph for planning to divorce her quietly. Matthew is wanting to do the righteous thing, but to do so not just in terms of the matter, but also in terms of the manner. 
not, to, to do the righteous thing, but not to do so in a way that brings public shame upon the one who he thinks has sinned treacherously. It's clear that Joseph is acting in a way that tries to look after Mary's best interests. Here's a man who wants to do the right thing. So the angel does not berate Joseph for saying, how dare you send her away? Rather, he encourages Joseph, Joseph, son of David, reminding Joseph of his own royal heritage, that he is the legal heir to the throne. He says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What does that imply? It implies, I think it gives us a hint of where Joseph's real inclinations lay. That he really wanted still to be with Mary, even hearing the stories. But there is a fear that is growing because he knows at this point still that the child is not his. Despite all the whispers, the fears, the rumors, Joseph, she has not done you any wrong. This is the Spirit's work and fulfillment of the prophets of old. So we read in Luke chapter 1, an angel had already appeared to Mary, letting her in on the Lord's purposes. And the angel there had cited from the prophet Isaiah. This is Luke chapter 1. Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb. You will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Using the language there of Isaiah chapter 9. Now in the Bible, when God or an angel announces what a child's name is to be, this takes on special significance. Because the name shapes the identity, the purpose, the destiny of that particular individual. And the angel who spoke to Mary, now an angel comes and speaks to Joseph saying the same thing. His name will be called Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from his sins. That is the reason why the child is to be called Jesus. What's the connection there? See, The Greek name there for Jesus comes from the Hebrew or Aramaic word Yeshua or Joshua. And what does Joshua mean? It means Yahweh saves. You're to call his name Yahweh saves, for he will save his people. And we think, finally, someone to deliver us from that wicked man, Herod. Hear what the angel says. Not exactly. Hear the people. They hear the story of the Messiah's birth. Oh, finally, someone to deliver us from the tyrants of Rome. Not quite. His name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from what? From something far more insidious. Worse than the tyrants seated in authority, Christ has come to save his people from their own sins. For those who perhaps you, you think of the, uh, the zealots uh, in Jesus' own day who are looking for somebody to liberate them from uh, political tyranny, the message we have here is you're not thinking big enough. Here, here's something that's far more glorious. More concerned about the the enemy out there is is the enemy in here. Jesus has come to deal with the filth, the dirt of shame. Here is a 
king who has been born who will deliver his people from their very own sins. Not that he will save them from a political despot while they still remain in their sins. No, the goal is to get the people, the the hearer of of Matthew's Gospel to begin thinking more heavenly-mindedly. Christ has come to save us from our own sins. Those sins that have separated us from God. Those sins that have incurred His wrath and have brought death upon the earth. Those sins that render us guilty and defiled and incur shame and have alienated us from God's presence. Here comes one who will reckon with your greatest problem. And here we're reminded the greatest problem is not the person who sits in authority in Salem or in Washington, D.C. or in Moscow or in China. The greatest problem that we have, each and every one of us, is that our sins need to be reckoned with. Our sins need to be forgiven. Forgiven. All this just as Isaiah the prophet had foretold. And here, Matthew points us back to the words of the prophet Isaiah uttered 800 years prior, summarizing Isaiah chapter 7 to 12. That though Judah had been surrounded and beleaguered by foreign kings and nations, though Judah had been betrayed by her own kinsmen to the north, though judgment would sweep over her like a, like a flood on account of her own sinful idolatry, The Lord promises that He will send a miraculous sign to demonstrate that He will keep His promise and place David's Son on a throne to reign forever. And the sign is this, that the true Son of David, the Messianic heir, would be born of a virgin. Who would have ever dreamt that such a lofty promise to Joseph's own forefather would now turn his whole world upside down? and then right side up. And yet, I think we all immediately notice that there is one difference between Isaiah's prophecy and what we see recorded here in Matthew's Gospel. And it's the difference in the name. And I think that's significant. Here the Messiah is given two names according to the angel. Here the child born is to be called Jesus. And yet according to the prophet, Isaiah, he is to be called Emmanuel. Both names are significant. Both names have been divinely given. In Jesus, we are instructed in the nature of his office. Yahweh saves. Joshua. He is the one who has come to save us from our sin. We are told of the purpose, the office of the Redeemer of God's elect. And in given, being given the name Emmanuel, identifying Jesus as our Emmanuel, we are instructed into the nature not only of his office, but also of his person as the God-man. Because Emmanuel means this, God is with us. Here comes the one who will save us from our sins. Who is that? Well, it is God who is with us. Though our sins have separated us from God, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 1, come let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Here comes the messianic king who by his own blood will wash our sins away white as snow. Reconcile us to a holy God. 
The miraculous conception of Christ points to the miraculous nature of Christ's work, that He is both truly God, whose Father is God in heaven, but also that He is truly man because He has been born of the woman, who has taken to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being made as we are in all things with one exception, being born free from the pollution and defilement of sin. Joseph awakes and he immediately obeys. Again, his righteousness is put on full display. He doesn't wake from his dream and goes, okay, well, that's another kind of pro to the kind of pro versus con list. Let me think about this some more. No, Joseph wakes up and he immediately obeys. Again, Again, we are given insight to the character of Joseph. He takes his bride, and despite the vigors of youth, being a young 18-year-old, he abstains from marital intimacy, though he was, again, once more within legal rights. He waits until the Messiah was born. We ask ourselves, why does Joseph do this? I think in considering how Joseph has acted so far, we're given our answer. Joseph does this to keep intact the integrity of, of this miraculous sign that has been given to the people of God, that the Messiah would be born, not merely conceived of a virgin. See, Joseph is a righteous man concerned with ensuring that all of God's promises are being fulfilled. Here is a man of quiet integrity, one who endures the pressing whispers of neighbors and friends who who will besmirch his own integrity. One who might cast aspersions on his own self-restraint. And yet here is a man who guards his wife and infant child in flight from the wrath of a phony puppet king as we will see in the weeks to come. As the phony king who sits on the throne now wants Jesus put to death. Here is a man who has been entrusted with protecting the Messiah. What a, what a privilege, what a weighty responsibility, what a righteous man. We're supposed to walk away impressed by the integrity of this man. You know, when Mary hears the angel's instruction, she says in Luke's Gospel, let it be to me according to your word. Though we do not know what Joseph said, we see here a man in action, a man of action. He demonstrates the same faith that his own virgin bride displayed. Lord, let it be done according to your word. I think what we have before us is a model of faith for us to imitate today. And yet for all of his righteousness, for all of his pedigree as a son of David, Joseph was not the one promised to save us from our sins. The angel doesn't appear to Joseph in a dream and say, Joseph, son of David, the throne is yours, take it. He says, no, Joseph, son of David, this... You're being entrusted as the guardian of the one who will inherit the everlasting throne, and it is he who will save us and save his people from all of their sins. There's only one who can deliver us. Joseph can't save us. Mary can't save us. Only the son of David, the child of Mary, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to stop and ask ourselves, what's so significant about the virgin birth well, I think in considering this story that's told, it's told briefly, but I think there's so much that is here, so much that is compact for us to contemplate. I think there are at least three things that we can consider 
as to the significance of the manner of Christ's birth. The first is this, that as Matthew makes clear, this virgin birth demonstrates that Jesus is the promised one foretold by the prophets. This is not a, a myth made up last minute to try to make you feel good. So you can sing a couple extra songs around the Christmas tree, Christmas time. This is real history. This truly happened. Jesus was truly born of a virgin to fill the promises as a sign to show that this is the one, to identify the one that God has sent to deliver us. Jesus is not merely the next in a line of righteous kings. We are not waiting for a greater one to come. The buck stops here. Jesus is the one foretold by the prophets. Not somebody further down the line. Not Muhammad. Not Joseph Smith. No one else. It's Jesus. Second thing to keep in mind here, this passage brings into scope the teaching of Scripture concerning human nature. As uh, David himself attests in Psalm 51, we are all born in sin. You read Genesis chapter 3. You read Romans 5 and its description and interpretation of Genesis 3. We have all been reckoned with the sin of the first Adam, and it's not only made us guilty, but it has also defiled us. From, from the moment of our own conception, we are polluted with the filth of sin. But here we are told the story of Jesus who has come as the last Adam, who comes and by the, the purity of his own conception, as it's been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, he comes to wash us clean. Luke will make this a little bit uh, more clear as he describes uh, the, the manner of Christ's conception. It's the Holy Spirit who overshadows Mary. Using that same language of Genesis chapter 1, even as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters at the first creation, so now he hovers over the womb of the virgin to inaugurate the new creation that comes through the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ who washes us clean. How does Christ make us clean? Well, he, he makes us clean by giving us his spirit. That spirit who superintended over Jesus' own conception and birth is the very same spirit who Christ has now poured out on his church and has lavished into our own hearts. That just as Christ was born clean, so we might be born again clean, washed and renewed. And that leads us to our final point. That our greatest need is not a change in political office. I think the past five years we've witnessed, I think, something of a revolutionary fervor that has reached fever pitch. Cacophony of voice is telling us where salvation comes, how salvation is to be attained. People who are so earthly-minded, screaming that the greatest thing we need is political change, either from the hands of a political tyrant holding seat in office or from the violence of revolutionary brigands roaming the streets. But I think what message the angel gave to Joseph informs us of the nature of our salvation. The angel does not tell Jesus, uh, Joseph that Jesus comes to save his people from the Romans. Essentially, we're not thinking grand enough. Matthew is training us to be more heavenly-minded because there is a greater enemy that we face than one that sits on 
the seat of office either in the state or in the federal government. Pick your poison. Our greatest enemy is our own sin because it is our sin that separates us from God. And Christ has been given to deal with that. That is why we worship the living God. That is why we, uh, as the church, uh, uh, owe our allegiance to the King of all kings because He has delivered us from our sin and our misery. That's what we need to be delivered from. It's the reason Jesus came to to claim the throne that is His, to deliver us from our sins. And so the question we have to ask, the question I now ask you, the question I've been asking myself this week, are you burdened? Is your conscience been tainted by past sins or present sin struggles? Might I commend to you that that's your greatest, that's your greatest need, is your conscience needs to be dealt with. But the good news that we have is that the solution is found through faith in the one who makes us clean. Even from the beginning, he was made clean. He was born clean. I shouldn't say he was made clean. He was born clean. He was kept pure. So that through the totality of his life, from the birth to the grave, he would live that perfect, righteous life for us. That he might fulfill all righteousness, so that we, having believed, might have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Even as the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, Christ, our great high priest, is faithful and just, not only to forgive us of all of our sins, but also to cleanse us from the filth of sin. And here we're given the story, the good news of how this good news begins. How it is that we are made clean. This is why it is so important to believe that Christ himself was born of a virgin. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your miraculous sign that you have given your church. We ask that you would grant us the faith to believe And that by believing, you would grant us the grace uh, given to us through Christ to wash us clean of our sins, uh, to wash away our conscience, and to shore it up, to, to, to strengthen us that we might approach your holy throne in worship with reverence and awe. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.